What's up, football fans? Welcome to the Jesus Movies Podcast, where we search movies for lines, scenes, characters, and themes that trace truth in the gospel. I'm Kevin Carlock. I'm here with my fellow fantasy football league champion, Graham Hooten, and our hope is that you'll join us on the great journey of storytelling by asking thoughtful questions about why certain movies and moments resonate or don't resonate, and what they might say about the movie, about you, and perhaps about humanity as a whole. Today, we're talking about Remember the Titans, and Graham, my one question for you is, what are you... Mobile, agile, hostile. What is pain? French bread. What is fatigue? Army clothes. Will you ever quit? No, we want some more. We want some more. We want some more. Now let me ask you something, Mr. Campbell. What kind of power you got? Man, I got some soul power. What kind of power you got? I got soul power. Yes, you do. How strong are you? I'm too strong. How strong are you? I'm too strong. We want a victory. I want a victory. Y'all want a victory? Let's go, man. So, <laughs> on that note, <laughs> I don't even follow that. I've probably I've seen this movie four times. There's no probably about it. I know it's been four, and to me, it feels like a mix of Miracle and High School Musical. Interesting. Okay, two other Disney movies, two other uh, feel-good stories. I hear you. Yeah, I feel like Miracle has like the classic sports team plot with conflict that generally moves primarily from like internal and within the team to like external and like now we got to go win. Win rings, baby. Win ships. Get dubs. Yeah, I think both of those movies specifically, uh, you know, are made more powerful by how they fit into the broader American context. You know, with Miracle, the backdrop is uh, the Cold War and U.S. versus Soviets, and with Remember the Titans, it's the backdrop of the civil rights movement and racial tensions. So, uh, yeah, I think they're pretty fair to make some parallels between the two films. The High School Musical side has kind of the cheesier, like you know, all the like dancing and singing and sort of like we're all in this together type stuff to it. Which personally, I wasn't quite as much of a fan of in this movie. I think it kind of like took me out of the movie at points. But but there is kind of um, a realizing a better version of your school and your community side that I maybe Miracle. Or like your other Rudy type sports movies don't have. So I think that's what's cool about the high school musical crossover, um, which we obviously get with T.C. Williams High School. Yeah, I definitely hear that. Um, There's a lot of cliches in the movie. And so, you know, I love football films. I love Friday Night Lights, specifically the TV show. And I think that does a really good job at looking at the issues with high school drama and just team dynamics without fully... um, going into the cliches and diving into like the, hey, this is what always happens in high school kind of film. Favorite things about this movie? I really love the characters. I think there's a lot of really good um, just character development throughout this film. People are one way at the beginning and they're one way at the end. Um, I love missional community and we're going to talk a little bit about that and just a group of people uniting around a collective goal. Um, and I think there are some real like tearjerker, a man that is like powerful gospel moments in this film, which I think is one of the reasons why we chose it. Well, we've got a lot to get to, so why don't we hit some awards? Give me your Lazarus Award for the most high-key gospel moment in Remember the Titans. So this is a movie that's got a lot of high-key and low-key gospel moments, but um, stick with me as I dive into my Lazarus Award, which is Boone's speech at Gettysburg. Take a lesson from the dead. If we don't come together right now on this hollow ground, we too will be destroyed. Just like they were. I don't care if you like each other or not, but you will respect each other. 
So I think Boone's doing a lot of things here. Um, and to provide some context for the scene, this is what's happening. Uh, the team is at football camp at Gettysburg College. And so uh, initially there's a bus, bus full of all white kids and a bus full of all black kids. And uh, Boone makes them get off and integrate. And so a lot of this two-week process of camp is beginning to trust one another, break racial barriers, build relationships uh, between people of different colors. And so Boone's doing a lot of things here. Um, he's taking his players out on a jog early morning. They're doing three-day practices at this point because they can't seem to get along. They can't seem to care for one another. And so uh, he's one at this moment, allowing them to experience collective suffering. Um, and I think this is a really important uh, part of the gospel, specifically when you look at the Old Testament and the way that God handles his relationship with Israel during the Old Covenant. Um, Israel's people turn away from God time and time and time again. If you look through Exodus, if you look through Leviticus, um, Judges, uh, the Samuels, like the constant narrative of the Old Testament is that God provides for people, they turn away, they create their own false gods, um, they head for destruction, and then God provides a person, or, or maybe he allows his spirit to intercede in a way that brings his people back to him. And so the first thing that Boone is doing here is he's allowing the people to experience collective suffering. And so the verse I pulled from here is early in Genesis, Genesis 6, 5 through 7, and this is when God sends the flood to wipe out people for... Um, their disobedience to God. It says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. This is really strong language, like God straight up saying, I regret that I made humanity. It is better that they would not have been born than they, had, they would have steeped into sin. And so God sends the flood, allowing the people at the time to experience the consequences of their decision to turn against him. So this collective suffering is an important part of uh, orienting people back towards God and realizing, hey, this is actually good. This is the life I was intended for. Um, life could be so much more. The second thing that Boone is doing here is uh, showing his players where they're headed. Um, and so he provides them context for the Civil War and talked about how brother was fighting brother. Like there is blood boiling up in these fields, lead pouring through their bodies. Um, and the reality is like 100 years later, they're still navigating the same racial conflict that um, many people think, and a keyword think, they solved during the Civil War. Um, and so... He's basically contextualizing their behaviors with past history. And there's the general agreement that like, hey, we never want to go down this civil war route again. Millions of people died. Um, and so he's showing them like, hey, this is the trajectory where you're headed um, because you have hate in your heart. And so the verse I pulled here was Deuteronomy 8.20. Like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. He's basically saying, as a consequence of your refusal to get along with one another, you will ultimately be destroyed. Um, and Jesus talks about this a little bit in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and so Jesus goes and casts out demons, and people are like, man, he's casting out demons in the name of Satan. And Jesus is like, what? That is not happening at all. Um, this is Matthew 12, 25 through 28. It says, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. So if Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. 
But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. I think this is an important verse for a couple reasons. Uh, but when we think about the words like, a house divided against yourself will not stand, I mean, I'd be curious to hear, think like, what were, who would you be your immediate reactions? Like, who do you think said that? Yeah, I would not have thought that it was said about demons, I guess, was what I was thinking. Mm-hmm. And I think many Americans would be like, oh, that's Abraham Lincoln. Like, he had the, the speech in the Illinois State Senate when he was talking about the division of the Union and the eventual Confederacy, saying, like, a house divided will not stand. And so even in the Lego movie, which is one of my favorites that came out in the last five years, there's that line from Abraham Lincoln, the Lego man, saying, a house divided against itself would be better than this. And so that phrasing kind of gets tied to Lincoln, when in reality, Lincoln just took it from Jesus. Um, and three, I think the final thing that Boone is during, doing during this scene is providing the team with a collective identity. Um, and I think this is one of the most fundamental things that uh, kind of leads to the conclusion of this movie. Like, hey, in Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile or man or woman. We are grafted into this common body um, and we are unified under Christ. Our identities are actually stripped from us. And I feel like uh, a lot of Western individualism is about like, hey, I got to find my identity. I got to like basically create this own uh, name or narrative for myself and how I live my life. Um, But reality is like Jesus provides unity through bringing us into his family, through bringing us into this collective identity. And so our identity is actually restored when we're willing to submit it under his broader authority. Um, 1 Corinthians 6.17 says, But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Um, And then we go on to talk a little bit about the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 12.21-27. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. I think what Boone is getting at here is like, look, if one relationship suffers, uh, if one individual is not buying into this greater body of a football team, if one individual is not buying into the body of Christ, the rest of the body suffers. And each individual on this team has a unique role to play. Um, They're indispensable, and we are actually made stronger when the weaker perceived ones of us are grafted into that body. And so this providing of a collective identity, I think, is really important and sets the stage for the rest of the film. Uh, and that's why I'm giving it my Lazarus Award. Yeah, and we get to see that too, because Ray doesn't really buy in, right? And he gets cut off. Oh, yeah, 100%. <laughs> I think it's funny to look at actually Ray, the character throughout the film, especially when we were, we were reenacting the Julius uh, um, Gary scene. But if you look at him in that film, in that scene, he is just so not about it at all. Yes, I want to ask a couple quick clarifying questions is each part indispensable you said explain to me sort of like how that relates from the football team to the church or god's body is it a one-to-one uh i wouldn't say it's necessarily a one-to-one um so i think what jesus is talking about here is like every single part has value within the body of christ and some things have more perceived value than others like somebody might value an eye more so than a toe uh but there is like a a sense of interdependence in the body of Christ that we are actually made stronger when like even the weakest of us are grafted into that body. And so I don't think that's essentially the narrative that Boone is going through in this specific speech, 
but I think in providing them a collective identity, they no longer have to be like, oh, I'm black or I'm white or I play offense or I play defense. There is this common identity of, hey, we are the Titans. That is who we are, and I am a member of them, and my role within them is to serve this broader body. And so any tensions or disagreements or prejudices I have fall by the wayside when I'm grafted into this broader collective identity. Okay, okay, makes sense. And then for the idea that a divided kingdom cannot stand, so is that saying by definition that is true of Satan and the devils? What what Jesus is trying to do is differentiate here Satan and himself and how like they operate within the world. And so the uh, Pharisees are accusing uh, like Jesus of driving out the devil because he himself is the devil. And they're like, and Jesus is like, no, like Satan doesn't drive out Satan. That would mean he would be divided against himself. Okay, interesting. My Lazarus Award goes to Gary and Julius at the hospital. But I'm going to kind of take you down Gary and Julius Lane first and give you some nuggets along the way so that when we get there, it'll hit home. So here's kind of the context. Julius and Gary represent the two best players on the team for their respective races. Gary is white, has played at T.C. Williams, and is the All-American linebacker and team captain. Julius is black, new to T.C. Williams, and a star defensive end. And it's really their bonding that largely facilitates the team's racial bonding because the white players look up to Gary for leadership and the black players look to Julius. So what's so cool is that their friendship really begins uh, when they have a heated argument about how the other is letting the team down in different ways. And though they won't say it here, they're really having this conversation because they respect each other and they recognize the influence that the other holds over their teammates. All right, man, listen. I'm Gary. You're Julius. Let's get some particulars and just get this over with, all right? Particulars? Yeah. No matter what I tell you, you ain't gonna never know nothing about hey, me. Hey, listen. I ain't running any more of these three days, okay? Well, what I got to say, you really don't want to hear, because honesty ain't too high up on your people's priority list, right? Honesty? You want honesty? All right, honestly, I think you're nothing. Nothing but a pure waste of God-given talent. You don't listen to nobody, man. Not even Doc or Boone. Shiver push on the line every time, man. You blow right past them. Push them, pull them, do something. You can't run over everybody in this league. And every time you do, you leave one of your teammates hanging out to dry. Me in particular. Why should I give a hoot about you? Huh? Or anybody else out there? You want to talk about a waste? You the captain, right? Right. Captain's supposed to be the leader, right? Right. You got a job? I have a you job. You been doing your job? I've been doing my job. Then why don't you tell your white buddies to block for Rev better? Because they have not blocked for him or for Plug Nickel, and you know it. Nobody plays. Yourself included. I'm supposed to wear myself out for the team? What team? No. No, what I'm going to do is I'm going to look out for myself and I'm going to get mine. See, man, that's the worst attitude I ever heard. Attitude reflect leadership, Captain. Which brings me to two quick applications. One Can the relationships in your life withstand sincere confrontation? Are the people closest to you willing to speak to you truthfully about how you could get better at something or how you're blind to something that's damaging you or your future or those around you? Or perhaps above all, are they willing to speak truthfully to you about how you've let them down? Or are they afraid that doing so just might ruin everything? And so in short, how high is your bar for what constitutes biblical friendship? Social media wants to tell you that you have so many friends, but is it possible that you actually have far fewer friends than you think? 
Um, and I know that might sound harsh, but I, I just want us to like re-examine our understanding of what, what it really means to be a friend and how many we really have. So this is Proverbs 20. I mean, Proverbs is just like littered with verses like these, but mm-hmm. this is a really uh, good one from chapter 27. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So we sort of see the author here saying better to be, you know, wounded by a friend than kissed by an enemy, basically. My church is going through the life of David right now and and through the book of Samuel. And 1 Samuel 25 tells a cool story about David and Abigail. And basically David comes to meet this guy Nabal, who's wealthy and ignorant and insults him and won't feed him. And David's, David and his men are on the run from King Saul and they're desperate. And David gets so mad, he, his hand is on his sword. And over and over the language is swords, 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 men, draw your swords, be prepared. We're going to take out Nabal and his men and we're going to get what we need. But Abigail, this woman, basically gets down on her knees and pleads with David not to do this thing and that it's wrong. And her confrontation of David ends up melting the ice in his heart or maybe better, extinguishing the fire and the flames and and soothes his anger and brings him back to a more biblical approach to the situation. And and they end up getting married. Um, But anyways, the idea is that biblical confrontation can bring about a really beautiful thing. And so who are your real friends and who's willing to speak against you when you're out of line or when you... You've hurt their feelings. And and who are you being a real friend to? And I think in all these things, we want to look to Jesus as the true model for friendship because he first and always affirms us, but he's also willing to critique us to bring about the best version of ourselves. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, can you be friends with someone you disagree with? Can you respect someone that you actually don't like? Dr. Zach Eswine is a Presbyterian pastor and author that I really like, uh, The Imperfect Pastor. He wrote that, and he writes about how Disagreement of ideas does not mean rejection or hatred of a person any more than affirmation of a person means agreement in all ideas. Uh, And we're so quick to accept everyone politically aligned and reject everyone politically opposed. And I would posit as an alternative, the church, as my pastor faithfully and repeatedly preaches, the church isn't a social club. It's not a polite society. It's not a social movement. It's not a spiritual hall of fame or a museum of saints, as it's been said, but rather much more like a hospital, even a hospital where patients assist and tend to the other patients themselves. And so it's full of people who fight and disagree and have wildly different personal backgrounds, career desires, social circles, and personalities. But it's a family. It's a family that submits to and worships something bigger than itself, and that leaves tremendous room for disagreement and roughhousing. And that's kind of to your point with the Lazarus Award, a divided kingdom cannot stand. The church is a family. Um, And so Julius and Gary start to take each other's advice. Gary cuts into white offensive lineman Ray for not blocking for black running back Rev. What was that, Ray? Whatever it is, it ain't blocking. Give me a break. You want a break? I'll give you a break. Me and Julius. Wait a minute. Just let let them in. Get to Rev once, just one time. I swear to God, I'm going to hit you so hard by the time you come to. Ooh, boy, you're going to need a new haircut. You understand me? (laughs) Let's play, fellas. And then Julius lays a massive hit on PD that for the first time really shows his loyalty to the team and how how that's improving and sort of taking precedence over pre-existing racial tension. And then look how beautiful it is when it all comes together. This is a really moving moment from the movie. You all right, Big PD? You all right? You really stuck him, Campbell. Yeah, I love me a little contact, PD. This is left side. Side. Left side! Left side! Left side! Left side! Left side! Left side. 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 Left side.
So that's sort of the context for Gary and Julius. One, willing to confront and be confronted, and two, respecting even when they strongly disagree or just plain don't like each other. But all of this serves to take us to my Lazarus Award moment, the moment that gets me the most in the feels in the whole movie, and the moment I see the gospel most clearly. Toward the end of the movie, Gary gets in a devastating car accident. He's in the hospital and paralyzed from the waist down, and Julius doesn't know yet. And when he gets to the hospital, here's how he reacts. How you doing, son? He ain't all right. He all right. How's he doing? Not too good. Not too good. No, how's he doing? How bad is it? How bad is it? He's paralyzed from the waist down. Don't say that to me. Don't say that to me. Sorry, Mr. Dear. I'm sorry. Sorry. He doesn't want to see anybody but you, Julius. Yes, ma'am. You are strong. Yes, ma'am. So first I see Gary as myself and Julius as Jesus. I'm badly injured and I only want to see Jesus. And that makes more intuitive sense to me because I'm Gary and I did the stupid thing in the car and now I'm injured and pissed off and heartbroken. And Jesus is the healthy healer that I desperately want to see. But more subtly, and, I, and dare I say more deeply, Julius as myself and Gary as Jesus. Listen to how the scene turns. I sure am sorry, man. I should have been there with you. What are you talking about? You would have been in the bed right next to me. You can't be hurt like this. You, you Superman. Jesus was the one who got bruised and bruised and bruised for me, and he is the true Superman who deserves more than this, more than what he got. It quite emotionally reminds me of the relationship between Jesus and Peter. Peter is one of the very first disciples, and he's the first to correctly name Jesus as the Son of God and prophesied Messiah. Matthew 16 records the story. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So we have this really cool moment between Jesus and Peter where Peter is like, no, you're the son of God. And like, that's, that's who you are. And that's why you're here. And so it comes as a shock to Peter when Jesus tells him what he's going to have to endure in the coming days. This is the very next verse. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And so Peter is really upset. I mean, he is heated. He's rebuking Jesus. He's saying, You're Superman. This will never happen to you. I won't let it. You're too strong. You're the Christ. You're the miraculous healer, scripture preacher, demon dismisser, enemy reconciler, taboo sin forgiver, authoritative teacher, unconditional friend. You're Superman. Surely you are made for more than this. 
And if you've ever seen Harry Potter walk to the Forbidden Forest to die in the Deathly Hallows, or Aslan walk through the forest to the Stone Table in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or Gandalf stand up against the Balrog in Fellowship of the Ring, William Wallace surrender his life in Braveheart, or Dumbledore at the top of the Astronomy Tower, Princess Anna jumping in front of Hans Blade, or Hercules diving into the River Styx, or a million other stories when the really strong character knows he or she is going to their death, it's the same thing. You're Superman. You're too strong. This cannot be the way. Surely it's not supposed to end this way. And to bring it home, what's so cool about the role reversal in the scene is that if Jesus really is Gary lying on that hospital bed, then he really does only want to see one person. When the Romans whipped and scourged and mocked and nailed Jesus' wrist to that cross, he was thinking of one person and one person only. You. I'm sorry. He doesn't want to see anybody but you, Julius. Yes, ma'am. Jesus only wants to see us. He saves all all of us as if there's only one of us. And that's why it's such a powerful moment to me. Yeah, no, I love that. I think that's beautifully said. And I think there's so much there. There are a couple things I, I think I want to have questions about. Um, one, when we talk about the foundation of Gary and Julius's relationship, do you think that it's potentially made stronger by the fact that they start enemies? Like, do you think in some ways that's a fertile, I don't know, ground for a relationship to grow upon? Yeah, I just think that conversations that are heated usually don't get heated unless it really feels like something is at stake, like that relationship is at stake. Like I just don't see Gary or Julius getting into a really hot argument with the one of the third string tight ends who doesn't really care that much about the football team. You know, like the reason that they're really upset is because they recognize that there's something real here. There's a lot of potential. He even says, you're a waste of talent, a God-given talent. Like there's a recognition that Julius has something really cool and something that the team needs. Yeah, I love that. And I love how the relationship is built on that realness of them being honest about what they see in one another. Because a lot of times in relationships, that's that kind of comes secondarily. It's like, oh, first we have a common interest and we maybe, you know, share a couple relationships and whatever. And then it gets real. But I really love that it starts real here. Um, I think the other thing, just to add to your kind of sacrificial atonement um, thing with Gary in the hospital bed, Julius comes in and there's that moment where he's like, I should have been in the car with you. Mm -hmm. Like, I should have been with you. He's like, no, don't say that. And I, I mean, I don't know. That, that's definitely a Jesus moment for me. Because like he wants to bear the punishment instead of him or. Yeah. Just like, man, I should be the one that who, who is like suffering on that hospital bed. Mm. Um, and like, he's like, no, then it'd just be like the two of us. Whereas like Gary's kind of, even though it wasn't an intentional sacrifice, Gary is bearing the weight of that punishment uh, instead of like the, them collectively bearing it. Yeah. And there is like, cause in, in that regard, Julius is more like Jesus. So there's a lot of that overlap of like, well, in this element, I'm kind of like Gary and Jesus is like Julius. And then if I look at it this way, you know, I'm sort of like Julius and Jesus is like Gary. Like, and I, I love the layered, the way that that works. And I think in your really great movies and literature and any kind of content, you get a lot of those different layers where like, oh, this applies. Oh, this applies from a different angle. You know what I mean? I agree. And that's why it's not like, hey, we're giving this person the Jesus award because in every category they they check the box it's in these specific instances and, right yeah, i think even if you change your perspective you know you can see it in a different way right and i think it's that kind of complexity that like keeps it interesting and makes us want to watch it over and over and over again like i probably watched that scene 10 times just thinking about it and it was really emotional you know don't tell me that don't tell me that how's he doing you're superman mm. superman so you know because jesus is the superman right but there's also a way in like jesus is saying hey Graham, like you're Superman to me. Like I died for you. Like, come on. Like you're the treasure. Mm. Mm. I love it. Good for the soul. 
So hit me with your Mary Magdalene Award for low-key gospel moment in this movie. So to set up the scene, uh, Gary and the rest of the team return from this camp experience, right? They're at Gettysburg College. There's this breakthrough. We kind of have his relationship with Julius completely transforms, and they begin to trust one another, and the Titans are off and running. Um, And there's this moment after they get their first victory where his girlfriend, Emma, pulls up beside them, and Gary's hanging out with his teammates, um, and she just says to him, like, I'm not running in the same direction as you are, Gary. Standing up for what you believe in is all well and good, but you gotta get you got your priorities real mixed up this time. What are you trying to do, Gary? Listen to it. When something unexpected comes, you just gotta pick it up and run with it. I'm not running in the same direction as you are, Gary. Come with us. Look, standing up for what you believe in, it's all well and good, but... You got your priorities real mixed up this time. And so what I want to talk about, uh, and that is my Mary Magdalene moment, uh, is the experience of liminality. And so liminality is, uh, I'd not say a concept that is talked about very frequently in the church, um, but Jonathan Stacks, who writes this book called Covenant and Conversation, defines liminality as, quote, a boundary between two domains that must be traversed if one is to enter into a new mode of living. Essentially, it's, Uh, the space between what was and what eventually will be. It's like an earthly purgatory, perhaps. And there's lots of examples, I think, of this in the Bible. Um, One of them being uh, the Israelites wandering in the desert um, for 40 years after, after leaving Egypt and before entering the Promised Land. It's in this liminal experience that they're discovering their true identity. Um... I think we see this very much in Mount Sinai. Carmen Joy Imus has this uh, line in this article called Finding Life in Limbo, where she says, Sinai is part of the Israelites' liminal experience. In the wilderness of Sinai, they are free from the mind-numbing distractions of Egypt and Canaan. In their isolation, they can hear the voice of God. Having lost their old identity, they are ready to become what they are meant to be. Um, I think there are a lot of examples of the ways that Christians implement liminality within just like the, their religious per se, practices. I think Holy Saturday, which is, you know, between Good Friday and between Res- Resurrection Sunday, Re- Resurrection Sunday, like the space between when Jesus is not yet risen. I think Advent Lent, um, just waiting upon like the, um, like waiting upon the Easter experience. And so um, I think like liminality is key because it allows us to develop into who we might become. And so what happens with Gary is that he goes away to this camp. And I think all of us can relate, especially if you've ever been to a Christian camp, you've been to a revival, you've had some sort of missional experience where you, where you go away from the world that you live in and you encounter God. Um, and you feel like, man, coming back home, everything is going to be different. And that's something we struggle with in youth ministry, uh, especially what I do today is like kids can go away for a weekend and be like, man, I'm like, I see the world in a new way and I'm going to come back and live differently. And yet when they come back, they reenter the world that's got the same problems that had they, that were there right when they left. I mean, you got Gary's dad saying what they do of their brainwash them. And then another dad says they must be high on something like no sane person would choose to see the world in the way that this football team is now seeing the world. Camp over now, huh? Back to the real world, Bertia. And so... Uh, there's kind of uh, two contrasts for like what it looks like to follow Jesus in the Bible. And I think there's kind of the Peter and Paul. And so in the, the example of Paul, there's really like not an extensive 
phase of liminality. Like Paul goes on the road to Damascus in Acts 9 and Jesus encounters him and he's blinded. And all of a sudden he kind of has this change of heart where he flips on a dime and he's like, I'm all in on Jesus. Like I am going to go after uh, anybody who's been persecuting Jesus and I'm going to share with them the good news. Um, and then you kind of stole my, my verse in Matthew, what I was going to talk about with Peter has this experience of liminality when he calls out like Jesus is the savior. And and upon that moment, Jesus confers Peter identity, said, you are the rock upon which I'm going to build that church. Um, and yet Peter's very much stumbling into that de- identity after that moment of liminality. Unlike Paul, who just dives right in after that. Peter's like, Jesus, you're never going to die. And Jesus goes, get behind me, Satan. Like, get out of my way. You have no idea, like, what this experience is going to entail. And so the reason that, that Gary is uh, my Mary Magdalene moment is that, like, once we encounter Jesus and once we have that moment, um, we can kind of come back home and be like, man, everything's going to be different. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to experience this radical community. And I think these are things that like Gary theoretically experiences back home. But in reality, there's a lot of social forces, relationships, and ultimately bridges that are going to have to be burned if you're going to really choose to be about this life. And so, um, yes, like Jesus restores us into new life, but it also means that we are stepping out of an old one, which is going to be really hard and uncomfortable. But missional community is so important because Gary has a team of people that is united around this common goal. Um, And so I think... Uh, the key point here is that like accounting, encountering Jesus is essential and is rightly glorified. However, the work of Christ happens when we pick up our cross and follow him back into a broken world. That's when it gets real. That's what Gary struggles with. Um, and I would argue that the movie oversimplifies that process a little bit, but that's my Mary Magdalene moment. So how does it end for Gary's girlfriend? She ultimately ends up kind of reconciling, right, where she goes up to Julius before the final game and shakes her hand. And so there's kind of this uh, process of gross growth that she goes through. But I mean, Gary essentially had to be willing to say goodbye to that relationship. And it was, I'm, you know, thankfully it was restored in the movie. But, I mean, you got to be okay with, like, letting her walk away. Yeah, and why do you think that's so, so hard for us? Yeah, I mean, look, in, later on in that Matthew uh we have the the story of the rich young ruler who's done everything right. Basically, like Peter's like, if hey, if a rich man can't get to heaven, if it's harder than uh, a camel going through literally the eye of a needle, like how are we going to experience eternal life? And Jesus is like, man, leave your friends behind, leave your family, leave your wives, leave your possessions. And that seems like a really impossible task because the familiar the familiar world is like all that we've known. And uh, it's kind of like goes back to goodwill hunting. Like we're asking Will to leave behind the guys who have been his ride or dies um, for the last 21 years of his life in order to experience a life that is really unpredictable and he knows nothing about. And so, I mean, I think a lot of us enjoy our complacency because it's comfortable and because it's safe and because it's known. But I think what Jesus is calling us to be part of is something that's unknown, beyond ourselves, unpredictable. Um, And it's that adventure that is both so terrifying but also so exciting. Yeah, that uncertainty makes us really dependent, and I think a lot of us don't like that. We we don't like feeling dependent. Right. Paul says, like, my power, or Paul says about us, like, our power is made perfect in Christ. And so um, that's the calling is to be weak and follow him anyway. My Mary Magdalene Award is going to Alan Bosley, played by Ryan Gosling, atoning for Petey's sin. So context again. In an early game, Petey screws up big time by missing a block, and Herman just cuts into him in front of everybody. Petey, get over here. What are you doing, son? You missed a block by a mile. You didn't even have the football to fumble this time. There's no excuse. No excuse. You want to play football or not? 
Do you want to play football? Boy, get over there on the bench. But Yost goes to the bench and gives him another chance. You all right? That was a two-year start at GW. All this yelling he's doing, it, it, it don't do nothing but make me play worse. I can't play for this man. You come play linebacker for me. And Petey does well on the defensive side for Yost, and they win the game. But the next day, Herman confronts Yost about the decision to bring Petey back in. All right, listen, about Petey. No thanks required, coach. Thanks. You challenged my authority in front of the entire football team, coach. Now, you think you're doing these boys a favor, taking them aside every time I come down on them, protecting them from big, bad boom. You're cutting my legs from under me. The world don't give a damn about how sensitive these kids are, especially the young black kids. You ain't doing these kids a favor by patronizing them. You're crippling them. And so this sets up a cool character arc for Yost. Will he continue to do things his way and bail out punished players? Or will he submit to Herman's authority and take his advice about not coddling them? And so Yost is tested on this arc when in the next game, Petey screws up big again, this time by completely walking out on the team in the middle of the game. Uh, and it happens kind of quickly, so if you're not watching closely, you can miss it. But here it is. Ethan, on me! Okay, Petey. Don't you drift to the strong side. Coach, they're calling a holding penalty on me every time. Did I ask for your excuses? You want to act like a star? You better give me a star effort. Do you hear me? Forget about him! But surprise, surprise, Petey returns at the end because he wants to play in the state championship, and this is the climactic decision that Yost decides to make. Coach, Coach, I just want to say I'm sorry. You abandon your team in their moment of need, Petey. Sorry won't make up for that. Yeah, I know, but listen, I won't play for you. I'll, I won't play for the championship. You can play for me next year. You sit on that bench. Show me you can support your teammates. You start again as a senior. And I love this so much because it shows that decisions have real consequences. There is a price that must be paid for treason, and that's the case for all of us in our sin. Romans 6.23, wages of sin is death. Galatians 2.19, we are dead in the law. James 1.15, sin brings forth death. Romans 7.5, sin bears the fruit of death. All these different languages and just so many places in the Bible. If there is to be any true justice, which I think we all really, really want, then a price must be paid for wrongdoing, and Petey's price here must be paid. But as is the case with the gospel, someone steps in to pay the price for Petey, and it's none other than heartthrob Ryan Gosling's Alan Bosley. Going zone, Alan. Sir, I can play with Roosevelt, but I cannot play with these guys. No, I tell you what, I didn't want the bench all year so I could watch us go down on my account. Put Petey in, he's better. You want him to take your spot, you go give it to him. When the team needed it the most, Jesus paid the price for Petey's treason and laid down his starting position so that God's team might win the game. I think that's a really great moment and stepping in uh, is atoning. There has to be a price that is paid, so, and that's really great. Absolutely. Let's keep moving. Give me your false prophet award for non-biblical argument that this movie makes. Okay, this is going to be a little longer, but it's also twofold. Um, and I'd say my false prophet award goes one to uh, at the movie's failure to address the systemic root of racism and sin in the world, and two um, that sanctification is not 
framed as a lifelong process but is done overnight in this film. And so what I mean by this is that Remember the Titans is a film, uh, yes, it's about football, but it's also about race and it's about difference and it's about reconciliation and building a collective identity to be a part of this grander narrative. Um, and yet it doesn't really address the root of systemic sin. Like we come back from this liminal experience when we're at Gettysburg College and then everything is kind of made all right. And yes, there are like a couple road bumps along the way when Sunshine tries to take two of the players into the diner and they get shunned or there's that moment when Julius tries to meet Emma and she doesn't want to talk with him. But for the most part, like racism kind of seems to be resolved here. Um, like, hey, you know what, we can like get over our differences and we're just going to like live kind of happily ever after. We just had to be reminded of what is true. And yes, there's so much hope to be found in this racial narrative in the sense that we can recognize our own brokenness and unite around a cause that's greater than ourselves um, and learn to love people by spending quality time with them and building empathy. However, it doesn't address the systems uh, of economic oppression, treatment um, by other races, of redlining, false racial narratives, police treatment. It makes the issue seem almost equal between blacks, blacks and whites, when in reality there's a huge social imbalance in power between the two groups. The white folks are not the ones getting bricks thrown their window. They're not the ones getting kicked out of restaurants. They're not the ones being shunned by the opposite racial group. The scripture I pulled from here is actually Exodus. It's Exodus 1, 8 through 22, um, which tells a story about Pharaoh being threatened by the Israelite children. It says, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have come become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pitholm and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, you will see that the baby is a boy, kill him, but if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered, Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwife arrives. Uh, and basically it goes on to share that the midwives don't end up killing the babies. And so the issue here I don't think is the direct policy that Pharaoh is ordering them to kill all of the baby boys. It's like the genuine hatred that that policy is rooted in. And the making right of this process doesn't happen overnight. Philippians 12, 2, 12 through 13 says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. And I think in a lot of ways, Gary specifically is shown as like, it just kind of the switch flips for him. And he may have to make a couple hard decisions, but really it's kind of all downhill from there. When in reality, I'd argue like Gary probably faces a lot more backlash in real life than he ends up facing in the movie. Okay. Yeah. makes sense. And so as far as uh, to make it even more complex, ministry is about faithfulness, right? Like God doesn't need to use us to win people to Jesus or to come right. alongside people, but he chooses to use us. Right. And sure. so you don't have to be on a, mission trip to Singapore or to Kenya to be sharing the gospel and loving your neighbor well, right? So I guess the question is, um, to what extent do we sort of go out of our way 
to pursue uh, the more systemic communal side of racism and reconciliation. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question and an important one for us to address. And it's like, look, you could, I could look at the example of like child labor and like maybe like sex slavery in the world and be like, dang, that is like a brutal world issue and like it needs to be solved. But like, what can I do about it? And so I think it, it takes us being honest and evaluating the communities that we're in and our spheres of influence and being like, hey, where can I identify systemic sin that is in like here in the world? Like if I'm looking at my organization and being like that I work for and being like, hey, man, they're like places where it's just like my organization systemically disenfranchises minorities. Like that's a place where I can speak up. Um, and so I think for us, it's, it's going to look different for every person. You know, my dad's in finance. It's going to look different for him than it is for you who's in screenwriting, you know. And I think, you know, it, we're not about, hey, we have to like lay out these specific policies. It's more like, hey, let's embrace the truth and this like ideal and let's figure out how to work it out in our specific context. Got it. Great answer. Uh, just to keep things moving, I'm going to move on to my false prophet. This is shorter and maybe not quite as strong. Two strange inclusions for Herman's character that I don't really understand. One is the sideline speech lie that he gives about his family and his brothers. And the second one is what I'm calling the banana flex. So the first one is Herman, I believe, is plenty imperfect as a character already. The movie shows us that he wrongly idolizes winning. And I would argue that this arc was slightly unsatisfyingly unresolved in the movie because they, they never lose a game. And so we don't really get to see that tension play out quite as much. But anyways, he's flawed and I feel like we get it. Like I feel like the movie presents him as a non-perfect character and that's great. So first he lies to Ronnie Sunshine Bass about his family in the hopes of motivating him. Twelve brothers and sisters, I was the youngest one, but they were all looking up to me. Now, I wasn't ready yet either, but they needed me. Your team needs you tonight. You had twelve brothers and sisters? Eight. Yeah, twelve sounds better. And again, I just sort of wonder, what's the point here, and why is it sort of presented as okay? It seems very inconsistent with this character. Second, he gets revenge on Coach Tabor, who calls him a monkey in the pregame interview to the press. By giving him a banana after he beats him, sort of in the line when they're shaking hands. Good job. Good game, coach. And I know it's not that provocative and doesn't really start a big squabble or anything. It's just a banana. But the heart is absolutely in the wrong place. The movie is glorifying getting the last say and rubbing it in your opponent's face. And it's in no way presented as a character flaw for Herman, but rather the reward of working hard. And so that's why it's a false prophet. It's not because it's like a not biblical thing that happens. It's because the movie is basically saying like, hey, if you do your part, this is what happens. You get to sort of like rub it in at the end and that's okay. And so I just don't really understand why that needs to be there. And so I know I've done this scripture before, but I'm doing the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. So for lying, let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from the devil. That's 537. And then going down to 543, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And so we see very clearly that Jesus is asking a higher standard of his followers. Don't you know, this for that, you punch me, I punch you. There's no reason for him to give him the banana, and I just don't really understand why it needs to be in the movie. Yeah, I think that's that's good, and I think that's also a tension that a lot of the followers of Jesus faced during the time during his time. Like Jesus is this all powerful, righteous man God who comes and like wants to 
the people think he's going to overthrow the government, right? Like Jesus is going to create this really strong army. He's going to bring it to earth. He's going to take revenge on everybody. And yet like he takes the posture of the cross um, being fully humiliated and defiled and like completely spit on um, literally. And so, uh, yeah, like I think in some ways as readers of the gospels, we want Jesus to fight back. Like we want him to stand up and be like, don't you know who I am in like a righteous anger kind of way. Um, but I do think that like that is a flaw in Herman's character. And, and again, like even as a, per, a person who's watching it, I'm not mad about that. Like I'm not mad that he's throwing the banana. I'm not mad that he's making up stories because it feels like to me at sometimes the end justifies the means. But in reality, like that's a non-biblical perspective. And it's a little bit more Malcolm X than it is Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. And it just seems like Herman kind of gives that away. Like he was doing so well, you know, taking the high road. And then when he does the banana, he at the buzzer beater, he kind of stoops down to the everyone else's level a little bit. And I, I like what you said, like when he gives them the banana, I don't feel mad about it. I actually like seeing it. And that's why I think it's false teaching, because the movie is basically saying uh, and even through really subtle things like camera position, lighting, coloring, acting, the way it's framed, like the movie is, is kind of telling you, especially music, like this is a cool thing or whatever. And that's why you and I, even I was the same way. I'm like, oh, that's that's so good. Like you got the last say, like it's so ironic. It's satisfying and everything. And then and then you sort of like come back and look at it again. You're like, you know, I don't think Jesus would do that. I actually think false teaching, false teaching. So who's the Jesus award? You've got a lot of good options here, I think. We do have a lot of good options. I'm sticking with the traditional view. I'm taking Boone. Um, and I think Boone for so many different reasons. I think one, he demands absolute perfection from his players. Like he's like, man, this team is perfect. And I love that line when like uh, it's halftime at the championship game and Herman's like, you know, we've learned a lot this season. He's like, Julius comes out. He's like, with all due respect, like you demanded perfection for us. This team, like individuals are not perfect. I'm not perfect, but this team is perfect. Do your best. That's all anybody can ask for. No, it ain't, Coach. In all due respect, uh, you demanded more of us. You demanded perfection. Now, I ain't saying that I'm perfect because I'm not. And I ain't going to never be. None of us are. But we have won every single game we have played till now. So this team is perfect. I think is a really good picture of the church, um, which has been sanctified, like so that Jesus can have the church as, as his bride. Like, look, like individual people are not perfect in any way, but like Jesus has made the church perfect, the perfect bride for him, um, that they like may know him and be in love with him. I think Boone also has this great line at the beginning. This is not a democracy. This is a dictatorship. I am the law. Yes. Um, you know, the kingdom of heaven uh, with Jesus at the throne is not a democracy. It is a dictatorship, a benevolent one at that, um, where Jesus is the law and like what he says goes. Um, and I think we see Boone also with a tremendous amount of love for his players. He cares for Louis, care, helps him get into college. He cares for Gary and every single one of the kids on his team. Um and he sets an impossibly high standard, which I'm going to go back to Matthew 19, 21 here. Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. He's challenging the rich young ruler, like, go, if you want to do this, like, be perfect. Ultimately, the rich young ruler is not perfect and he walks away. Um, but even in the fact that he demands perfection, even though he doesn't take on the same posture of Yost, like, he does have grace for his players and doesn't in actuality, respect them to be perfect. He just sets a really high bar um, and loves them in spite of that. So that's why Boone gets my Jesus Award. 
Yeah, I agree with all that you just said. And I really like how you included the dictatorship stuff because I actually almost picked that for my Mary Magdalene. I think in a lot of ways, we're so conditioned against the idea of a dictator or a monarch and um, rightfully so, I guess, if you look at history. But it, it does make a lot of sense to me that like the ideal governing system would be that one. It's just that we don't have anyone who's capable of filling that position as a human being. And so I think in a lot of ways... Herman Boone does fit the bill for sort of a Jesus-type character in that regard. I am also going middle of the fairway. I'm going with Herman. I'll cut it down because you said a lot of this, but he calls the players into a greater life, something that will be brutally hard, but unique and beautiful and meaningful. He gives them identity and purpose. He cultivates a better, fuller version of his players on and off the field. Like we talked about, that's kind of sanctification. And this movie, I think, is a lot more sanctification-heavy than justification. We get a lot less Aslan dying for his people at the stone table. We get a lot more sanctification being made like Christ, conformed to the image of his son, improvement on how to live more like God. Anyways, Herman Boone unites people who hate each other. He confronts and punishes instead of coddling or going behind backs. He's direct and authoritative. He's committed to a vision and an ideal independent of circumstances he calls us into new life and teaches us how to live it won't be easy but you wouldn't trade it for anything luke 9:23, and he said to all if anyone would come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it you give away everything and in doing so you get everything Mark 10, 21, we already talked about this, but the rich young ruler, Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, the rich young ruler went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. You know, like you're going to give up something very real, just like he talked about with Gary and his girlfriend. And then Matthew 7, 13 and 14, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many for the gate is narrow and and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Not everyone gets to be on this football team, and not everybody can keep up. And that's something we see in sports movies. This is going to be really, really hard. Do you want in or do you want out? Because you're going to live a radically different life. And then lastly, uh, more on the topic of race-related stuff. Ephesians 2, I think, is just a beautiful passage for this. I'm going to read kind of a lot, and it's going to be a lot to comprehend. But I just want you to sort of think about the imagery of how Jesus is really uniting to culturally contested people groups, the Gentiles and the Jews, circumcised and the uncircumcised. Here we go. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his own flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. That is a powerful passage. I remember when the racial tension stuff was first kind of heating up this year, 
my pastor uh, read that in sort of the call to worship at the beginning. And it was, uh, I had just, I had forgotten truthfully how, how much the Bible has to say about reconciliation and how it really is Jesus. Like he, everything over and over and over in that passage, like both are becoming one through the cross. He's done it in his own flesh. The cross has paid this reconciliation once and for all. Um, yeah, there's a lot to be said there. Yeah, I think that's great. And I think what's so key is that um, like we are grafted together into the body of Christ. We're not like Jews and Gentiles aren't reconciled for the sake of being reconciled. Like Gary and uh, Julius are not friends just simply for the sake of friends. Like there's this greater pie in the sky of like, hey, we we are a team and we're trying to accomplish this goal of like playing winning football together. And like in the body of Christ, like we are united in submitting ourselves to Christ and seeking to follow him uh, out into the broken world to like be a part of healing that world. And so um, we can't be friends of people who are different than us simply for the sake of being friends. Um, there has to be a missional element to that in order for us to experience the richness of relationship that God intended. Um, and so, yeah, I, I totally agree there. Right. And that mission being provided by God, you know, I just think a lot of Christians don't really have a sense of that mission. You know, we, we just sort of think it's the get out of jail free of for hell. But um, as one pastor I'm close with says, if you ain't fishing, you ain't following. <laughs> There's a big difference between Jesus being your savior and being your Lord. Yeah. And we're, we're trying to follow at the end of the day, right? We're trying to follow the vision and the lead and the example and the mission of someone else. So that's it for the awards and now onto the Q&A. But first, an announcement. Need new running shoes? Want to support a local business? Omega Sports sells running shoes and a variety of athletic apparel and equipment, both in stores and online at www.omegasports.com. For online orders of at least $90, they offer free shipping everywhere. And use the redemption code JIM for Jesus and Movies. Doing so gives you 10% off your purchase and gives another 10% towards our production costs. Again, that's omegasports.com, code JIM for a discount and to support us. And now onto our Q&A, and we don't have any Q&A this week because we didn't have any questions, and probably for the better because we're rubbing up against some time boundary already. So I've got a question for you. Okay. What's wrong with Ray? Ray feels like a character who's very entrenched in the world that he's living in, who has a lot of loyalty to Gary. I think he's worried about you know, losing his starting position. And, you know, I don't. we don't get a good look inside of his soul. We don't really know what's going on. Um, I think a good character to talk about as a foil to him is actually Louie. What would you make of his character? He's the big offensive lineman who ends up going to college. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I know who he is. He's, you can't miss him. I think unfortunately he represents the cheesiness of the movie to me i really don't like all of the singing stuff i get that there's some cultural ties there i'm not trying to like condemn you know a way of life or traditions i'm just saying it took me out of the movie at several points especially at the funeral when they start saying na 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 i was like man i mean maybe people do that at funerals i guess i don't know but it just it felt like very forced i guess it felt a little bit high school musical-y to me and i thought that this movie could be a little bit more than that if it was that without yeah. it no, I, I hear that. I think what I like about Louis and what's interesting about him is he's like the first character to kind of cross racial lines and go sit with all the black players. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, what's interesting is like he's a very much the least of these in that film, right? Mm-hmm. He's like way overweight. He's the new kid. He kind of moved around. He's poor. He says he's white trash. And so like out of the posture of being very low, he's like, I don't have anything else to lose, which makes crossing that boundary a lot easier for him compared to somebody like Gary or Ray. Like they have a lot more to lose. 
Um, and I think a lot of us could learn from Louis. Like, are we really, are we poor in spirit? Are we like willing to admit that we have nothing left to lose? Are we lowering ourselves? Um, because like, that's who the kingdom of heaven is for. And so I just really like his character and, and his, what he kind of serves as an example of. Yeah, I thought he was a strong candidate for the Jesus Award. And I would even, because even before he sits with the players in the cafeteria, he runs in the gym when they're sort of doing like the military-esque introductions and tryout kind of stuff. And he's sort of like, I hear there's football and I come running, you know, like doesn't matter who's playing, doesn't matter what skin they are. Like, I just want to play ball. And so, again, you see that kind of sense of like mission that kind of goes beyond circumstance. Right. Agreed. Sadly, we have to stop the discussion there, but before we close, here's a quick shout out to all of our supporters on Patreon who make this discussion possible. Andy Simmons, Ben Dunbar, Bess McLawhorn, Clay Young, Courtney Carlock, Craig Carlock, Graham Hooten, Helen Webster, Jacob DeRizio, Janet Hooten, John Pabone, Ken Hooten, and Mike. Mike, thank you for joining the clan. Thank you so much for your support, everyone. A few housekeeping things. Our monthly production schedule is posted on our Instagram, at Jesus and Movies. Give us a follow and a like so you can see what movies are up next. You might notice there are no patron picks in November. That's to give you all time to see the movies in advance if you'd like to do so. And it's also because December will be only patron picks. If you'd like to support the Jesus Movies podcast, Patreon is for sure our preferred way of support. And signing up for a dollar a month lets you pick the movies, submit questions for the Q&A, get shouted out on the podcast, and featured on our Instagram. So if you'd like to join the group, please do so at patreon.com slash Movies or on the free Patreon app. Lastly, if you're listening on Apple, please give us a review and let us know what you think. It really helps us improve and figure out what's working and what isn't, as well as reach new people. Thank you so much for joining us on the Jesus Movies Podcast, and we hope you found some goodness, truth, and beauty. Know that all differences were reconciled in Christ when he won the state championship, and we'll see you next week.